Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Perfect ruby is hard to find, perfect ruby is hard to find, down and the gold slash and shine, and I dig my life away, oh, well I dig my life away. This is the minor song by Woody Guthrie. Until very recently, there'd be no danger of confusing people if you started talking about the role of miners in global capitalism. But the rise of crypto finance has given the term a whole new meaning. For its boosters, crypto is a modern-day version of the California gold rush, with fortunes to be made. And it seems to have attracted as many crooks and fraudsters as the original Wild West. Our guest today is Rama Vasudevan, She's a professor of economics at Colorado State University and the author of Things Fall Apart, From the Crash of 2008 to the Great Slump. How do cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin differ from traditional currencies such as the dollar, the euro or the yen? All currency or money is based on trust. Okay, now um, this could be a trust in a central authority, state or a financial institution, right? Now, so we use bank deposits to make payments, and we are sure that the bank is going to fulfill the payment. And if the bank doesn't have the cash, the bank, we know, can borrow from other banks or go to the central bank in order to clear payments. So this is the trust which is at the heart of conventional money. Now, the thing about cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is that it upends this model. It's not based on the guarantee of any bank or the state as a basis for its acceptability or credibility. What it does is it sets up a peer-to-peer payment system, which dispenses with the need for a central authority or financial intermediary. And that is the big innovation. To bring this about and literally create uh, crypto tokens out of thin air, what crypto does is it deploys technology instead of trust. And this is a conceit of Kipro. That technology can bypass the need for, of trust in ensuring the credibility of a crypto token. And what they use is a cryptographic proof, the power of code algorithm, which is wielded to establish a secure, permissionless payment system. Now, the magic of blockchain is the bedrock of the decentralized logic of cryptoverse. And what this means is time-stamped, immutable, cryptographically proven transactions, which are recorded and shared in distributed ledgers across a network of servers. And this was a big deal. And this is what distinguishes crypto from boring finance, as it were. No backing of the state, no backing of a financial, the reputation of a financial institution, just technology. In terms of the wider social picture, on top of the technical aspects of how cryptocurrencies work, what was the promise that was associated with cryptocurrencies when Bitcoin first launched shortly after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008? And has that promise been realised? Crypto was launched through this white paper by this anonymous person going by the name of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. And right when all the all hell was breaking across the financial system, banks had collapsed, shadow banking system, and the mortgage crisis had kind of upended the shadow banking system. And we had witnessed this extraordinary bailout of big finance by the Fed and other central banks. Now, This is where the allure of crypto comes from. It's derived from this libertarian pipe dream of supplanting the tyranny of central banks and the predations of big finance with a neutral, faceless arbitration of digital technology. And the premise is that decentralized, trustless, anonymous, peer-to-peer, blockchain-enabled mechanisms could be wielded to challenge the stranglehold of big finance. Now, Belying these illusions of decentralization, which is the big mantra, the actual functioning of crypto finance remains very, very dependent on centralized exchanges for buying and selling crypto assets. For example, Coinbase, Binance, or the infamous FTX. 
centralized lending platforms like Celsius and Block Finance, centralized investment kind of uh, vehicles. And what these are are third-party private entities which coordinate, mediate, and clear transactions while maintaining records and retaining rights over the accounts off the chain. So in that sense, there is a central platform, which is the backbone of this so-called decentralized illusion. And the governance structure of crypto is also supposed to be based on consensus-based mechanisms, right? Uh, So it's done by the majority votes of crypto token holders and not by some executive board of big financiers and elites. Now, this has been kind of upheld as a way of democratizing finance. But the fact is that crypto tokens are concentrated in a few hands. And this means that the automatic mechanisms of handing out control or decision making to crypto holders basically grants greater power and influence to a few large investors, right? And these large investors can and they do wield their power to set terms, manipulate prices and gather larger returns. And the smaller investors basically lose out in the process. And even in those segments of the cryptoverse, which is not uh, based on centralized platforms, what's called DeFi, decentralized finance. And here you have automated protocols with smart codes that run uh, day and night on the blockchain. You could imagine these automatic trolls kind of uh, pacing the, the financial cryptosphere. Now, even here, the need for governance makes some kind of centralization necessary. And there's a concentration of decision power in the big token holders. So in that sense, this decentralization is a myth. And you see that most clearly when there's some kind of crisis and there's a need for some kind of executive decisions. You don't have any consensus-based mechanisms working. Someone at the top makes a decision, right? So that myth of decentralization is basically a non-starter. And that has been one of the features of crypto finance that have been used to promote it really aggressively. Bitcoin is an electronic online digital currency, was created about three years ago. By 2013, crypto finance had become a legitimate discussion topic for CNBC. You exchange your euros, whatever, you go onto these networks and it's an accepted currency. The host still had to explain to his audience what Bitcoin was. And his guests couldn't agree on whether it had a future. The whole, the whole Bitcoin market is about a billion dollars. It's a novelty yeah. for the geek squad. I, I can assure you, if these became well promulgated, then the U.S. government would shut it down. And just to, well, just to, or, give, our, just to give our viewers some perspective, there's about $4 trillion in currency trading every day. And as Michael said, it's about a billion dollars worth of Bitcoins. David, how much of your uh, wealth will you place in Bitcoins? What percentage well, would you I guess would you I, I believe that a, for any sort of a highly diversified portfolio, something like Bitcoin is going to play an increasing role. But it could be, because it could be wiped it out in such a different way. Purchasing power can be wiped out in a nanosecond, and that's why it would never be widely accepted in this country. I hear you say that, but that doesn't make it true. And I think that there are people who spend a lot of time on this that might know this topic maybe a bit more and who would believe in it. In practice, in view of what you've told us already, what have cryptocurrencies actually been used for over the last decade and a half? Okay, so crypto tokens, I mean, they've been subject to these really volatile price swings. I mean, uh, and we've seen that in the past, ever since the inception, there have been ups and downs. And they also have this really slow, very painfully slow settlement process. And what this means is they're not really good as a stable or efficient means of settlement or payment. So they're not really good as money, right? And the frenzy for collecting and trading digital assets has not really established them as a means of payment or as money, except in the shady world of money laundering, uh, illegal trades, darknet, even a role in corporate ransomware. Uh, Just recently, there's a study which showed its role in opioid trafficking. And of course, the evasion of international sanctions, which is becoming more and more important today. So this is where it functions as a means of payment. But rather than offering an alternative form of payment, what crypto tokens really are is basically a financial asset. 
one which you kind of a financial asset is held and transacted in the hope of making speculative gains. And crypto finance has simply expanded the hunting grounds of financial speculation. It's a place for scamsters, developers who talk up a new crypto token, join a lot of investors and then run off with the loot, what's been called the rug pull. Early bird Ponzi schemes where those who get in early make money, but then you pull out and those who are left basically lose a lot of money. So it's not a zero-sum game. People lose. But what has happened as crypto has evolved and new crypto assets have been developed is that it's the scope for speculative as profits has also widened much beyond simple price swings, which kind of led to gains and losses for people holding an asset, which moved up or down. So now this unregulated world of crypto, basically you can make money from lending, investing, leverage bets, they are derivatives. And this ecosystem had basically peaked, especially after the pandemic, to cross 3 trillion before it collapsed to 1 trillion last year. So it's basically a financial asset, basically a new frontier for financial speculation. One of the most notorious scandals in the field of crypto finance involved the company FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. FTX recruited a group of celebrities for promotional slots. NBC carried this report on the subsequent legal fallout. You know what? I'm in. Tom Brady, Giselle Bündchen, Larry David, Naomi Osaka, and Steph Curry are among the celebrities accused in a class action lawsuit of being part of a, quote, fraudulent scheme designed to take advantage of unsophisticated investors that led to $11 billion in damages, all stemming from their involvement in promoting crypto exchange FTX. FTX's founder and CEO Sam Bankman-Fried was until recently the darling of the crypto community. His company, once valued at more than $32 billion, is now seeking bankruptcy protection. We're talking about one of the larger bankruptcies we've seen in a long time. Bankman Freed is currently on trial in New York. CBS had this update on the story last month. Former crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried pleaded not guilty today to fraud and money laundering charges in a Manhattan courtroom. It was his first court appearance since his bail was revoked this month for accusations he tried to intimidate a witness. He's being held in a Brooklyn jail. Prosecutors say Bankman-Fried masterminded one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history. He's accused of stealing billions of dollars in deposits from his cryptocurrency company FTX to finance his hedge fund. What is the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies? Okay, so um, crypto does away or claims to do away with the need for financial intermediaries or central banks. And technology is the anchor of it. But what this basically means is that that the network of servers which mine and validate crypto tokens basically guzzle a lot of energy in order to support the computing power needed to solve the cryptographic puzzles, right? The proof of work, which validates a transaction. So this proof of work is highly, highly energy intensive. I think there's a report in, which basically said like uh, in 2022, the electricity usage for crypto assets was between 120 and 240 billion kilowatts uh, hours, uh, kilowatt hours per year. And this range exceeds the total annual electricity of individual countries like Argentina or Australia. Now, crypto asset activity in, in the US alone is estimated to have resulted in about 0.4% to 0.8% of the total US greenhouse emissions. Now, this seems small, but it's a range of emissions similar to that from diesel fuel used in railroads in the US. So, the environmental footprint and implications of the growth of crypto, of the massive amount of computing power, energy guzzling computing power needed to support it is huge. People have been talking about the proof of stake and Ether in particular is moving towards that, one of the big crypto coins. Now the shift from proof of work to proof of stake, 
which basically means that instead of using code or algorithm to solve puzzles and validate transactions, you put up collateral. And that's collateral is a crypto asset. So this is what is guaranteeing basically the transaction. But what this means is that what you are what you might gain in terms of reducing environmental footprints, you're going to basically lose in terms of exacerbating inequality because it's only those who have assets who can provide the collateral. And collateral-based systems don't just uh, fuel fragility, they also promote greater inequality because those with assets can plow it back in, earn more, put that back in, earn even more and more, right? So it promotes an even more unequal distribution. A film produced by Wired magazine in 2021 looked in detail at the energy inputs needed for Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin hit $1 trillion market cap this year. This has inspired some Bitcoin operations to expand, especially in the wake of the recent government crackdown of miners in China. The ban on mining in China has caused a mass exodus to the United States, to Russia, and to any other areas where mining facilities are available. Welcome to Rockdale, Texas, America's new crypto mining hub. This building that's directly behind me, inside of the buildings, we have this shelving that's a thousand feet long, 20 feet tall, and there are just miner after miner after miner after miner. That's what mining is. It's a process by which people are contributing computing power and earning a reward for essentially participating in this process that secures a network. Everybody's using the same software that allows them to connect together and uh, participate in uh, a governance structure that's shared. It seemed like only yesterday that one person with a handful of computers crunching numbers in their apartment could make money from mining Bitcoin. So how do we go from there to here? Just like with many industries, you start small. The guy in the garage started the process. He mined Bitcoin. I believe the reward was around 50 Bitcoin for every block reward. Now it is at 6.25. Cryptocurrency is about the low cost provider. Texas is becoming a hotbed for other cryptocurrency facilities. In fact, Shenzhen based bit mining is coming to Texas, and Beijing based Bitmain a company that designs circuit chips for Bitcoin mining, is moving into the decaying aluminum plant down the road from Winstone. According to the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, $1 worth of Bitcoin takes 17 megajoules of energy to mine. That's more than double the amount of energy it took back in the day to mine $1 worth of copper, gold, and platinum. The machines require more power, and more power requires larger capacity, bigger transformers, higher voltage. Ultimately, the energy intensiveness comes from the fact that solving these mathematical puzzles is challenging, and you have to expend a certain amount of compute power against it to be the fastest one to actually solve the puzzle. And putting as much computational energy into that challenge as possible increases your ability to actually win. It's intentionally inefficient. How important was the development of stable coins for the field of crypto finance? Stable coins were crucial for this huge growth and transformation of crypto finance. And now stable coins, like one of the most important is Tether. Now they are designed to maintain a peg to conventional currencies. And they're typically managed by a centralized platform, which oversees not just the creation, but also adjustment and redemption. Because a stable coin has to be backed by a portfolio of assets, right? And you need to adjust and redeem parts of this portfolio in order to make sure that the stable coin can be redeemed at par with the conventional currency, right? You have to maintain the peg. And to maintain the peg, you have to have assets which you can liquidate in order to pay cash. So stable coins are distinct from crypto tokens like Bitcoin, Their prices are fixed relative to conventional currencies, and so they provide an anchor against price fluctuations. They are, in a sense, a place where you can store value, but you're storing value within the cryptoverse. And this also means it's a source of liquidity within the sphere. 
So crypto traders can move in and out of crypto assets without using conventional currencies, but with the assurance that there's some anchor in conventional currencies. So stable coins have been hugely important to the surge and growth of new crypto assets, new crypto funds, and the trade in crypto. They're kind of like a bridge between the volatile cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and conventional currencies like dollar, yen, euro, whatever. And in the world of crypto finance, you could think of them as standing at their apex, the hierarchy. They are the bedrock. They oil the engines and they basically helped the crypto finance to develop as a full-fledged complex financial ecosystem, which does everything which conventional finance does. But the paradox is also that since um, stable coins are backed by conventional safe assets, right? Treasury bills, commercial bills, whatever. They also reflect the fact that crypto is ultimately dependent on conventional currencies as a source of credibility and stability. So if crypto is to grow, it has to grow on the basis of its link to conventional currency through stable coins. How did the crypto crash of last year come about and what were the main players involved in the crisis? So um, the pandemic basically gave a big impetus to crypto. I mean, everyone was in lockdown modes in front of their screens and crypto took off in a huge, huge ways. Value surged the roof and the kind of peak being when crypto was fated in Super Bowl ads in 2022. And this bull run was brought to a ignoble end by the convulsions, which happened right after in May. And this began with the collapse of uh, these paired crypto tokens called Terra Luna. And you could think of this as a kind of Minsky moment for crypto, the moment when after going strong for a long time, the bull run comes to an end. As we heard earlier, CNBC once reported on crypto finance as a curious novelty. By 2022, the broadcaster had a regular program called Crypto World, sponsored by the website Crypto.com. The host brought investors the bad news about last year's crash. Welcome to CNBC's Crypto World. I'm Pippa Stevens. Crypto markets are plummeting this morning, down more than 14% by noon Eastern. Bitcoin fell to $23,000, Ether fell to $1,200, and Cardano was around 46 cents. The total market cap for cryptocurrencies dropped below a trillion dollars for the first time since January of 2021. Today's crash coincides with a steep sell-off on Wall Street as well. Okay, let's talk about our top stories. First up, DeFi lender Celsius halted transactions this morning as crypto markets tanked. In a memo, the company said it was pausing withdrawals, swaps, and transfers due to extreme market conditions. Now, Celsius is among the biggest players in decentralized finance lending. As of May, it has around $12 billion in assets under management and $8 billion lent to clients. The decision to halt transactions has raised concerns about the business's solvency. Celsius saw the value of its assets cut in half since the crypto market's highs back in October of 2021. Its sell token has lost 97% of its value since then. From one halt to another, Binance also... Now, Terra was a stablecoin which was hitched to Luna through algorithm. An algorithmic trading which basically maintained its peg with the Luna which was floating. Now, there's a really nice little game where Luna holders made profit from their stakes in Terra, and the demand for Terra was stoked through a new Terra lending platform, which is called Anchor. And this platform offered ex- like huge interest rates, like 20%. And these interest rates were payable in Terra. So this whole, I mean, it was this nice little engine which kept stoking its own demand. And if this seemed really good, too good to be true, it was. And these rates were unsustainable. And at some point, a pullout from Anchor, the lending platform, began. And that set off gyrations in, in Terra. And Terra, instead of maintaining its peg, kind of began falling. And the whole Terra Luna system basically crumbled. Now, incidentally, Alameda, uh, the venture arm of FTX, 
part of the Sam Bankman-Fried empire, was a big anchor depositor and one that pulled out early. Now, the ripples of Terra Luna spread the Celsius, a crypto lender, which again was offering huge interest rates. And when depositors began to pull out, it didn't have the crypto cash to pay them. There was Three Arrows Capital, a crypto hedge fund, again, invested heavily in Terra. When asset prices fell, it didn't have uh, the value of the collateral it had put forward fell. And it had to pay up more and didn't have. So the reverberation spread and Tether, one of the most important stable coins, the anchor of this cryptoverse, was faced with a fall in value, a kind of a moment which is like breaking the buck in a money market fund. The Nadar, of course, was later when, uh, with the spectacular tumble of FTX Alameda, after emerging as a savior, injecting funds into crypto entities in the early stage of the crisis, uh, when the unraveling had begun, Alameda was found to have siphoned depositor funds from FTX to finance loans. Now, this unraveling uh, reveals the fragile foundations of crypto finance. It From $3 trillion, it kind of fell to about less than $1 trillion in the short period. But what is happening here is very analogous to bank runs that have plagued the financial system since its inception. Now, traditional bank runs happen when depositors pull out their deposits all at once. In 2008, when Lehman collapsed, there was a different type of bank run, which was sparked by the collapse of the value of assets, which were used as collateral, and which pumped up the shadow banking system based on borrowing lending through the market rather than through loans and deposits, which is the traditional banking model. Now, falling collateral values basically decimated the basis of lending between banks and credit creation. Investors began pulling out money from money market funds and the system came to a stop. Now, the crypto tumble is another form of a bank run in the new unregulated world of crypto finance. Again, collateral values play a big role. And this is really important because since crypto transactions are pseudo-anonymous, traditional forms of credit risk assessment of the borrower are not possible. So in place of risk assessment, collateral becomes important and plays an even bigger role. So crypto transactions are generally over-collateralized. Liquidation of a transaction when collateral values fall is enforced automatically all of which makes it really fragile. And this fragility becomes even more severe because there's this rampant practice of using borrowed crypto collateral as a collateral for further transactions. So you borrow collateral and then use this to borrow more. And this is what's called a collateral chain. And the reason for this is there are huge returns which can potentially be captured, right? So what this means is that the initial collateral forms the foundation for a huge, huge pile of debt. So the pyramid of uh, crypto lending is being erected on the shifting sands of really volatile crypto collateral. Another kind of Achilles heel of traditional banking is the fact that you have a mismatch between your assets and your liabilities. So a bank will borrow in the form of short-term deposits, but it'll lend in the form of long-term loans. So now this means if depositors pull out, the bank doesn't have the ready cash to pay because the loans are long-term. Now, crypto is subject to the same kind of mismatch. Stable coins like Tether were issued against less liquid assets like commercial paper, which is used to fund short-term transactions of corporations, like the collapse of Terra showed that risky, volatile crypto tokens were the basis of of its lending. So it didn't have, uh, or when it had to pay out, what it had was volatile crypto tokens, which had fallen in value. So you had this mismatch. So again, crypto finance is not that different from traditional finance. It has the same tendency to fragility. And the crash last year 
basically revealed that. While countless people lost money as a result of the crypto crash, the greatest reputational damage may have been suffered by actor Matt Damon, who appeared in this ad just a few months earlier. History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately, for them it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. And in these moments of truth, these men and women, these mere mortals, just like you and me, as they peer over the edge, they calm their minds and steal their nerves with four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. In fairness to Damon, he wasn't the only celebrity to have dipped his toe into these shark-infested waters. From Paris Hilton to Tony Hawk, there was no shortage of high-profile figures keen to promote NFTs. You have one being released soon. What can you tell us about this? Um, well, it's an NFT series that I'm doing with Super Plastic and releasing an Origin Protocol. I think uh, people are going to love this. Well, if you love it so much, I actually am going to give you the first one. I would, I would be honored. And I want to give one to everyone in the audience. Everyone gets an NFT? Yes, everyone. Everyone gets an NFT too. I think that's the first NFT giveaway in television yes. history. We love you. Iconic. Paris Hilton. I'm Tony Hawk, and this is my last trick collection on autograph. So I've recently decided to retire five of my signature moves because the risk factor is too great. I'm getting older, and so I decided to do them each one last time and offer them as NFTs so they'll live forever. In the light of that crash and other episodes of turbulence, how would you say the absence of central banks as lenders of last resort affects the overall dynamics of crypto finance? So the history of finance is the history of manias, panics, and crashes, to use Kindleberger's famous expression. And convulsions in the past have set the stage for the emergence of central banking and for the evolution of the tools and techniques that central banks use to stabilize and manage the financial system. Now, whenever the financial system faces the threat of an implosion, central banks step in with their safety nets and bailouts as lenders of resort or as market makers of last resort when asset prices plunge and basically the credit machinery kind of halts. So this lending and buying is what shores up the financial system. Now, crypto as the Wild West of finance has no such backstop. The role of uh, the lender of last resort or the role in coordinating rescues has also been done by private initiatives coordinated by big financiers with clout and capital in the past. So these big financiers will get other banks together, inject funds in order to shore up financial markets. And the big example, of course, is the lifeboat operations by JP Morgan in the panic of 1907 before the Fed was established in the in the US. Uh, when the crypto market stumbled, uh, it was also the heyday of Sam Bankman-Fried and Alameda pumped funds into flagging crypto funds, so, uh, prompting comparisons to JP Morgan. But private coordinated rescues are not enough. And if the impact of the implosion of the crypto sphere had threatened to engulf the financial system more systemically, central bank actions may have been needed more directly. And in fact, when some of the ripples of the collapse in the cryptosphere affected banks like Silicon Valley Bank, you did have the Fed stepping in. Now, this has been the pattern historically. Privately created liquid assets gather momentum. They are used to stoke the growth of finance. But when the going gets rough, prices tumble, mach the machinery comes to a stop. It's the interventions of the central bank which ensure the resilience of the financial system. Now, 
as crypto finance becomes more mainstream with big finance now seeking to exploit this new frontier of speculation with big tech entering with their own version of stable coins like metas dm central banks have also begun responding to this changing landscape and there there has been host of new digital currency projects being explored by central banks and these are seeking to position the central bank as a critical player in the growing crypto markets and what this also implies if this proceeds is that crypto stable coins will be more established as a monetary substitute central banks will be more implicated in ensuring their rescue when things go south this again is the historical pattern there's a link between private finance and central banks backed by the authority of the state they fuel each other and are kind of joined at the hip the volatility of crypto hasn't stopped one country's government from embracing it as legal tender al jazeera looked at the outcome of el salvador's pivot to bitcoin earlier this month it's now 2 years since el salvador became the first country in the world to introduce bitcoin as legal tender along with its regular currency the dollar. So has the experiment succeeded? The general verdict, not yet at least. One of the big selling points of the plan was that Salvadorans would be able to receive remittances from relatives in the US through Bitcoin using a digital Chiva wallet. But according to stats from El Salvador's central bank, most have chosen not to. Less than 2% of remittances went through cryptocurrency and digital wallets so far this year. Then there's Bitcoin City, a planned paradise for Bitcoin enthusiasts, powered by geothermal energy with low taxes and crypto mining facilities. It was presented by the president at a bombastic event in November 2021. Because this is a fully, fully ecological city that works. and it's energized by a volcano. But so far critics say that building has yet to begun. At the same ceremony, the strategist behind El Salvador's cryptocurrency adoption announced the forthcoming creation of Bitcoin bonds. The first one is going to be a billion dollar bond. And what makes it a Bitcoin bond is because it's backed by Bitcoin. So half of the billion dollars will go into buying Bitcoin. The other half will go towards infrastructure. Uh, specifically building energy infrastructure and bitcoin mining but the so-called volcano bonds have also yet to materialize meanwhile president bukele has been using government funds himself to buy bitcoins for the nation announcing on twitter when and how much he's purchased economists have been using those tweets to work out how those trades have gone estaríamos hablando de una at the price of bitcoin right now we're looking at a theoretical loss of 45.4 million dollars of public funds in these operations and those are just estimates based on the president's tweets because there is no information publicly available about how much he's traded but while information might be hard to come by in el salvador's bitcoin experiment one thing is for sure its president isn't giving up yet john holman al jazeera How does the rise of crypto finance fit into the wider picture of financialization and asset price bubbles over the past few decades? Has it worsened the problem of financial instability? So, um, crypto finance emerged in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008 as you mentioned, and this had turned the spotlight on the leveraged world of shadow finance, shadow banking, and the speculative excesses of big banks. but the ascendancy of finance and the inexorable pull of financial innovation in search of more returns did not abate in the aftermath in fact the financial system became more concentrated and big banks along with asset management funds became more consolidated so the impetus to finance or financialization did not abate crypto embodies finances innate impulse to continually innovate expand explore new frontiers in this quest for returns for the next best thing and the birth of crypto in the aftershock of the global financial crisis of 2008 reflects this the search for new avenues of profits 
at a time when the discourse had turned to the need to curb big banks, to regulate them. Crypto also tapped into this uh, pipe dream that crypto was a way for ordinary people to share in this rich bonanza that finance offered to the top 1%. So all this fueled crypto, and but crypto fuels the same pathologies of finance to fuel inequality, the concentration of wealth, while also continuously fomenting fragility. The financial system is a really powerful mechanism of concentration and the distribution of financial assets is heavily skewed towards the top, to the top 1%, the top 0.01%. The same logic is seen in crypto. The distribution of assets follow the same pattern of concentration. Uh, there was a study of Bitcoin between 2015 and 2021. 0.1% of miners controlled 50% of mining capacity of Bitcoin. The distribution of ownership was also concentrated with 0.01 individual Bitcoin holders holding more than a quarter of assets. So a few large pools, few players dominate. So this is the same pattern that you see in finance. Crypto has not leveled the playing field. It has also not um, contained fragility. Now, in the early crypto boom, uh, it was fueled by price movements. Uh, the evolution of crypto finance has opened the path to more returns from lending and investment and other forms of uh, financial transactions. What is more that it, it embodies finance and financialization in a more pathological form in the sense that decentralized finance in particular is this uh, reflexive space which feeds on itself. You exchange one crypto asset for another. You lend in a crypto token in order to invest in more crypto assets. And this transaction is itself secured by crypto assets which may have been borrowed. So rather than funding real economic transactions, trade, investment, crypto lending and borrowing is solely for speculation and kind of making money from arbitrage. It's rent-seeking financial speculation in its purest form. It's finance for finance sakes. And so crypto finance, as it exists, does not even perform the productive functions of finance in the economy in funding real investment, for instance. But um, despite all this, and despite the recent debacle, crypto is here to stay. It's mutating and transforming financialization. And two things are really important here. One, conventional financial institutions are entering the fray, even as big crypto players face a regulatory backlash. This includes big asset managed funds. BlackRock recently announced a tie-up with Coinbase. It's now pushing for this Bitcoin exchange trading fund, which would trade on the stock market. Leading banks, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, JP Morgan, they're all wading deeper into the crypto sphere. Institutional investors and their clients are also banging at the door, trying to get in on crypto assets. The second thing is that just as securitization, that alchemy which transformed illiquid long-term loans like mortgages into liquid tradable assets, I mean, just as securitization remains entrenched and continues to be promoted in the workings of finance, even though it brought down the system in 2008, similarly, the innovations embodied in blockchains, smart contracts, and tokenization, which are at the heart of crypto, they are reshaping conventional finance. Now, tokenization is a blockchain-secured digital representation of conventional assets. And it's the next big thing. It goes even further than securitization, enhancing liquidity, widening access to indivisible, illiquid assets by creating these fractional claims. You get a, a 0.01 share in something. And just as mortgages were securitized, crypto has now opened the path to tokenizing assets, including uh, deposits, treasury bonds, and other securities. It's turning on a spigot of financial fortune hunting. 
Now, the world of finance already rests on flimsy foundations. Tokenization adds another layer to the illusion of value that fuels speculation. To give an example, there's a new market for carbon tokens, which is making hay of the rising price of carbon offsets by buying and tokenizing cheaper carbon offsets. And this, of course, has questionable implications for carbon emissions, but it's a rich bonanza for the institutions trading in it. So crypto is basically financialization processes, kind of metamorphizing and maybe metastatizing. In another program sponsored by Crypto.com, CNBC discussed the future of crypto finance after the crash of last year. Bitcoin investors probably want to forget the past 12 months. On the heels of the collapse of FTX, the world's biggest digital currency started this year at around $16,500. Since then, Bitcoin bounced back around 60%, but in recent months has been stuck in a tight range between roughly $25,000 and $30,000. In 2023, investors have weathered a slew of industry bankruptcies, low trading volume, and a regulatory crackdown in the U.S., which have kept the cryptocurrency below $32,000. Not to mention the closure of crypto-friendly banks Silvergate and Signature back in March. Now, investors have been searching for a catalyst that could spark Bitcoin's next prolonged rally. And that good news doesn't seem too far away, with ETFs, regulatory clarity, and something called the halving on the horizon. Back in June, a whole host of asset managers spearheaded by the world's largest, BlackRock, filed to launch spot Bitcoin ETFs. Those are funds that track the price of the crypto asset. The moves immediately spurred a wave of buying as investors hoped Wall Street was poised to go big on Bitcoin. BlackRock is just so much bigger and so much more important than these other companies that have filed. That if BlackRock does have an ETF, you just know they're going to win. They, they have the resources, they have the marketing, the distribution to put new people into Bitcoin. You've touched on this already in talking about the role of central banks as lenders of last resort, but perhaps we could go into it now in a bit more detail. What would you say the story of crypto finance tells us about the politics of money and its relationship with the state? So Bitcoin and the kind of uh, allure of crypto is based on this libertarian promise of depoliticizing money by privatizing it and by removing it from the control of both the state and big banks. It was held out as the path to establishing a neo-Hayekian utopia of permissionless private currencies. But hidden behind this rhetoric of independence from central banks is the process which has enabled the ascendancy of finance and a a project which basically de-democratized money. And it de-democratized money by removing it outside the scope of democratic accountability. And this is very much in keeping with the thrust of the neoliberal agenda. So the rhetoric of independence is basically a rhetoric which takes money outside democratic accountability. Now, to unpack this, you must, I mean, we have to recognize that money is a hybrid offspring of both the state authority and market forces. And historically, there's been this tension between the state asserting its monopoly over the creation of money and private finance continually stretching the mechanisms of money creation through private channels in pursuit of profit. Uh, There's also been a tension between the state's dependence on financial markets to ensure the credibility of its monetary liabilities, treasury bills, etc., and the financial market's reliance on the state for insurance and a guarantee against crashes and crises. So private shadow money mechanisms flourish outside central bank control through the 90s. And and when these mechanisms ground to a halt in 2008, the full weight of the U.S. Federal Reserve, backed by the authority of the U.S. government, was brought to bear to restore the markets. So finance continually innovates. It seeks to escape regulatory bounds. And the state is compelled to step in to rescue private finance when a crisis threatens the survival of the existing system. This partnership between the state and private finance has been critical in paving the way for the ascendancy of finance and what's been called financialized capitalism. Now, the politics of money creation was clearly revealed in the Fed Reserve's extraordinary interventions 
at the time of the global finance, but even more kind of um, sharply in, in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The power of the Federal Reserve to turn on the money spigot was deployed asymmetrically to serve the interests of finance. Now, this is the context in which one, I mean, you can see on one hand, the growing influence of the political project of the modern monetary theory, which embraces the capacity of the state and seeks to create money and seeks to weld it to a progressive agenda of employment guarantees or the Green New Deal. On the other hand, it paved the way for the libertarian espousal of cryptocurrency as a bulwark against the despotism of the Fed, as a way to take money outside the sphere of politics, and as a consequence, outside the sphere of democratic accountability by privatizing it. Now, if the former project comes up against the power of finance to hold the state hostage to its interests, the latter initiative is ultimately faced with its dependence on the state for life support. So this powerful contested alliance between state and private finance, which lies at the heart of contemporary finance capitalism, is what the politics of money in today's world is all about. Status reforms which want to expand the discretionary power of the state to address uh, priorities of working people on one hand and privatist experiments to decentralize money. They both have to contend with this power if a progressive and democratic politics of money is to be forged. And crypto as it exists doesn't depoliticize money, it merely de-democratizes it. As a final question, would you say that crypto finance is likely to be a battleground in the economic competition between the US and China? Oh, definitely. It's going to be a battleground. It already is in some ways. It's a place where China will test and challenge the hegemony of the dollar. Now, China has already made uh, headway in its experiments with a digital currency, uh, the EUAN. It has an ambitious state-backed blockchain enabled global platform for decentralized applications and finance. So China is kind of moving, is trying to get the first mover advantage. Now, even before the war of Ukraine, the, US, the White House has explicitly acknowledged the geopolitical imperatives uh, of reinforcing American leadership in the global financial system at this technological frontier and has been talking about developing a centralized U.S. digital currency in order to ensure the, the future of dollar hegemony. The war in Ukraine has sharpened the geopolitical significance of digital money, including central bank-backed digital currency, especially since it's been the prime kind of arena for evasion of sanctions in a context where sanctions is one form of warfare. And it's also been a space which provides an umbrella against dollar hegemony. So this arena is is going to be critical and along with AI, and we're already kind of seeing rumbles in this area. Many thanks to Rama Vasudevan for that introduction to crypto finance. You can read some of our essays about the world economy on the websites for Jacobin and Catalyst. Dig, 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 dig,